This morning, I echo the words of Elder Carl Kozan in saying that this is certainly one of the um, best parts of the year to have such rich music. Who was here last night for the concert? Yeah, it was wonderful. And then it continues here. So we just want to thank you again for uh, lifting us. And I think what was beautiful about that song was there seemed to be uh, a number of endings. So you thought, oh, this is wonderful. It's about to, no, it continues. And sometimes during these seasons when this music is so rich, I want it to continue, and this song gave me that. So thank you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this moment where as part of our worship, we can consider your word. Please guide us, fill us with your spirit. Please give us the challenge and the encouragement that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Speaking about the 1980s, like my friend Donnie Viverka, on July the 13th, 1985, two billion people across a hundred nations participated in a special event. From Cambodia to Cameroon, America to Australia, Estonia to England, almost 40% of the world's population at that time chewed into a simulcast that was broadcasted in both England and in America. It was the Live Aid benefit concert put together by Bob Geldof. A constellation of musical stars played in the event, Queen, Freddie Mercury, U2, Paul McCartney, Madonna, Mick Jagger, Tina Turner, and on and on. Now the US concert ended with a song, We Are The World. And the words are this, we are the world, we are the children, we are the ones who make a brighter day. And some of you know it and may all be, and may be humming the, the tune in your head. Now, if you are aware of this event, they had one in England and one in the US. The US event capped off um, the event and they had all of the stars come together in essentially a mass choir. And in this mass choir, there was someone who is pretty well known, his name was Bob Dylan. And he was singing as part of this mass choir. And you would see, if you go and watch archival footage, that the camera would pan in and Bob is just sort of singing along with this perplexed and morose look on his face. Almost as if he came into the wrong room or he didn't want to be there. After the song was finished, journalists came to Dylan and they said, Dylan, what, you know, what was going on? Why did you look um, so sad? And Dylan, in his own way, just delivered this flat response. Uh, and he said, I couldn't sing because humankind cannot save itself. Now, Dylan, as you know, is a prophet of kinds, but it would seem at first blush that he was being a little bit of a wet blanket here. I mean, after all, you are singing to raise funds, to end famine, to do something good. And you stand in front of people and you say, that humankind cannot save itself. I'm sure people like Harvard professor Steven Pinker, the author of the book, Better Angels of Our Nature, would have been able to correct Dylan and say, listen, my friend, we have had less violence, less famine, less disease as we have gone through the years. You should be more optimistic. We could point to Dylan and we could say, Dylan, we, we can help ourselves." We're able to do stuff. I mean, Thomas Edison and the light bulb. We're able to do things. The Wright brothers and the flight at Kitty Hawk. We can, we can figure stuff out. 
Or how about Jonas Salks and the polio vaccine? We are able to engage in history-altering, world-changing accomplishments because of the determination and enduring drive of humanity, even in the face of untold failures, setbacks, and naysayers. We're doing a fine job, Mr. Dillon, in being able to fix stuff. We can fix stuff. And yet, at this moment, which should have been the pinnacle of human optimism, and it was for so many people, we have Dylan making a beeline for this radically pessimistic and contrarian view that humankind cannot save itself. And I don't think any of us sitting here this morning like being told we can't fix our own problems. In fact, we can. If your iPhone breaks, you just need to go to ifixit.com, order a packet. They will send it to you. You can watch a YouTube tutorial. Within an hour, you can switch the screen on your phone by yourself. You don't need to go to the mall, be in a conversation with someone who looks slightly dodgy with a stall in the middle of the mall to fix your phone. You can fix it yourself. If you have an ache, there are people who, can tell, who will tell you that you can fix it yourself. You just need the right oils and the right pressure, and you can fix it yourself. If you have any missionaries in your families who have gone out into the world to be part of those who bring the hope of the gospel to people, you know that you can fix it yourself. If you need something and you have a missionary uh, father or mother in your family, you know that all they need is a toothpick, a battery, and a bucket, and given enough time, they will create a combustible engine. <laughs> they are hardy people. Others of you grew up on farms where milking cows at the crack of dawn and taking care of siblings was part of what you did. You took care of things yourself. You fixed things. You didn't throw things away. You patched it up. You made it run on longer than others who would just discard it. And so you know that human beings have the ability to fix things, to save things, to make things better. And yet, I think this morning, as I think about this season of Advent and our text for the, for the day, that we can mistake our skills of being self-sufficient as extending to a capability to a pursuit of global salvation. So we we actually take our ability to be self-sufficient and to fix things and sometimes extrapolate it to a global ability to fix the problems of the world and to bring peace to the world ourselves. And this is what Bob Dylan rails against. He says, humankind cannot save itself. And so this season of Advent, and the word means, as you see on your screen, a coming or arrival. It's a season where we prepare for the advent of Christ. And yes, we know it's not December 25th, but that is beside the point. Our preparation during this Advent season includes a number of things as we think about Advent. We remember Israel's hope for the coming of the Messiah. During Advent, we also remember our hope for the second coming of the Advent of, of Christ. And I think this is a season that should be rich uh, with meaning for Seventh-day Adventist. Also during this season, we prepare to welcome Christ into the world and into our hearts. And finally, during the season of Advent, we remember that humanity cannot save itself. We need a savior. 
And so for these next few weeks, as we consider Advent, we will start off our journey in the book of Isaiah. We're going to go to this Old Testament 8th century prophet, and we're going to dive straight in um, in Isaiah chapter 9. And now Isaiah chapter 9 is interesting because if you turn there with me, you will see that the chapter begins with this funny-looking adverb that looks like three words squished together. And it's a word that is used to contrast or to add surprising information when you are in a narrative. So if we come to Isaiah chapter 9, and there's this funny adverb that is beginning the chapter, nevertheless, we have no context as to what it is contrasting, and so we need to go back to understand what is happening in Isaiah chapter 9. So let's go to chapter 8. Let's read a few things and see if we can find our bearings for this morning. So Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22. Now as you're reading this, you will find, excuse me, let's start in verse 21. We read, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Now does that help at all in giving some context? Some people are nodding, others are not sure. Maybe let's read another verse. How about verse 22? Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Those on the balcony. Do these verses help to give you some idea of where we are? Just make some noise on the balcony. You understand what's going on? Yeah? Okay. Who doesn't understand what's going on right now? Okay, thank you, sir. There was one person who said he did not know what's going on. So the rest of you are thoroughly aware. So just for you, sir. What's your name? Les, Les, just for you. If you go to chapter 8 of Isaiah, you will find that the Israelites are going through uh, some really difficult times. There is looming war. There is destruction. There is the Assyrian Empire breathing hot down their neck. And they are uncertain about the future, and people are searching for answers. And then when we get to the end of chapter 8, we find the Israelites crushed under famine, pinned under suffocating social and psychological problems, and facing a future as refugees. And although this is an ancient story, I think it mirrors so well the contemporary moment. And many people who find themselves at this point of their lives in the midst of social pressure psychological problems, food insecurity, imminent military conquest, and also trying to find answers to questions that seem intractable. When we read in uh, verse 19 of of Isaiah chapter 8, we find the people trying to seek answers. And this is what they do. It says, when someone Isaiah speaking, tells you to consult mediums and wizards because, again, there is a confusing existential crisis and they are trying to find a way out. So he says, when someone tells you to consult mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, and an interesting aside that I found looking at this text, the word whisper, because it it just seems such an interesting word to me, if you go and look at the text, um, there's an allusion to birds singing or chirping or twittering, right? It's so interesting to me. So you go, and he says, well, you know, you go to consult mediums and wizards who whisper, who twitter and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? 
So Isaiah says, look, if you go to these mediums and wizards, they are not going to help you. They may be the smartest people of the day, but their answers will be insufficient for the questions that you have. And then we continue. Well, if they can't help us, maybe we can go somewhere else. And so they say they will consider the king. And so they say we will go to the king, but then they find that the king cannot help them to figure out the answers to their questions. And so they curse the king. They say these um, people in power, these politicians cannot help us with the questions which are in our lives at present. So they say, okay, maybe we can go if the politicians can't help us, if the wise people can't help us, maybe we can go to religion. And yet, when we read Isaiah chapter 2, it says that they cast away God of religion, because that apparently is also unhelpful. And then finally, they turn and they look at the earth. They look at the earth and think, maybe Mother Earth can give us the hope that we need. Maybe the universe, maybe the benevolent unknown can come to our rescue. And this narrative continues. If The mediums and the wizards, the kings and God cannot help. How about the earth? And here is the thundering response. It is trouble, darkness, gloom, and anguish as they focus on the earth. As they focus on themselves, they do not find any way through the gloom and the dark that they are in. So although they are skeptical of politicians in power, cursing the God of religion, disappointed by intellectuals who think they have answers, they come to the bitter recognition that they cannot fix things themselves. They cannot fix it. They cannot outsource it. They cannot give it to consultants. They cannot pay enough money to deal with the crisis that they presently face. And as we begin the season of Advent, I wonder how many of us are in a place in our life where we feel like we have hit a dead end and we have intractable problems that cannot be fixed. We've looked for answers at the bottom of a bottle. We have looked for answers at the end of a a blunt. We have been to professionals. We have paid for consultations. We have doubled the sessions. We have upped the dosage and it still doesn't help. We find ourselves in the same situation that Israel is finding right here with an enemy at our door and all we see is doom and despair. What do we do? What do we do? You thought that perhaps just physically parking yourself in a church might give you some hope and it hasn't helped. You thought maybe working more hours so you can make more money might give you the freedom you are looking for, but you are still not free. Instead, you find yourself in a place, to use Isaiah's words, of trouble, darkness, and gloom. And if this is you this afternoon, then I'm going to invite you to just pay attention to what Isaiah says is the answer to these questions. Isaiah chapter 1, back to this squishy adverb with... Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And so we're starting chapter 9 with this bright eruption of hope and light in contrast to the gloom that Israel is in. And so Isaiah says, the gloom will not be upon her. Interesting. 
I'm having a conversation with Isaiah as I read this. Why is the gloom not going to be upon her? Why is there going to be a great light, Isaiah? Tell me more. Why is there going to be joy, rejoicing, harvest, and abundance? Because when you read Isaiah chapter 9, it's just an incredible picture of what is going to happen. And so I wonder, how is there going to be increased joy? Why are we going to rejoice according to the joy of harvest? Why are we going to have broken yokes and broken burdens? What is it that's going to happen, Isaiah, to cast off restraining orders, to break handcuffs, to have ankle monitors tossed away by those who are oppressed? What is going to be the answer to help us? What is going to stop the batons and rods of the oppressor being broken and the shackles of destruction being smashed? How does this happen? And as you read Isaiah chapter 9, you're on the edge of your seat. You're figuring out what is going to be the answer to this. Isaiah tells us in verse 6. He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting One. He says that the hope is in a yeled. A what? A yeled. A what, Isaiah? A yeled. A young child. That is going to be the hope for a world stuck and steeped in doom with no discernible way out. It's going to be a child. And this child is going to have the government upon his shoulder. His name will be wonderful. His name is going to be counselor. He's going to do incredible things. Time out, Isaiah, time out. I don't know if any of you have younger siblings or if any of you have children, but I would be rather worried if I was in a really difficult situation, an existential crisis, and someone said, a child is going to be the hope. Like, really, a child. Like this. You know, children? You know, we read the Bible and it seems, oh, it's a child, Shh, great. No, no, a child, you know, like this one. This is going to be the hope. A child, Isaiah. You mean like this child? <laughs> or like this child who is just having a complete meltdown? This is going to be the hope of people in absolute crisis. This is going to be the hope. This makes absolutely no sense to me. Makes no sense. And yet, as you read the story, you find that this child is no ordinary child, but it's a child in the mold of a Davidic king who's going to be a Messiah that's going to bring hope to the world. And when you turn to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 16, Matthew takes up this promise and he shows us how this child is actually more than just a young child, but it's the Messiah. When Jesus has heard, had heard that John had been put in prison, we're told he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And pay attention because this is now a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 9. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. 
On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so here we find Jesus having baptized John in the Jordan, or having been baptized in the Jordan after the death of John, retreats to Galilee to a land around the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And the promise here in Matthew chapter 4, picking up the Isianic hope in chapter 9, is that Jesus embodies and is in himself the light shining in darkness. He is the one that will break the yoke, the rod of the oppressor, which binds us. And this afternoon, as we begin this Advent season and reflect on humanity's inability to save itself, think about the words of Dylan. But we think about God's ability to erupt light where there is darkness. I wonder what is binding us as we sit here today. I wonder what we have on our shoulders that is weighing us down as we take the turn from Thanksgiving into this season of Advent. I wonder what darkness we have in our light that needs desperately for the light of God to shine into. I wonder how many of us are in the debilitating grip of toxic habits that we have fought for years to no avail. And we are in need of the light of the gospel, of the light of the Christ to shine into our dark places. I wonder how many of us sitting here today are crippled because of bitterness, which has been unresolved from years, and we sit like the Israelites in a place, and it's just dark. We have gone to different places, and they have been insufficient to help us, and we don't know what we're going to do. We wonder if we are going to become uh, disconnected from family, whether we're going to be estranged from, strength, from friends, and we just don't know where our hope comes from. And if this is you and this is the question that you are thinking, Advent is the time when we remember that God erupts into our situation as a light, bringing light from the outside into our places of darkness. Advent is, in a sense, an exercise in reclaiming a hopeful imagination about the future and about the world in which we live. Advent, if you are facing, perhaps you feel like you're in a wasteland because you really did not study as much as you ought to, and now you have finals upon you. Advent can give you hope. (laughs) You are in a place where you feel that you have hit a brick wall and you are unable to see your way through. And Isaiah's objective in providing us images of light while it is still dark, joy while people are still sorrowing, peace when war is still raging, is to help us to lift our imagination beyond and to see a greater reality that although we may feel like we are in a place, a situation, or a land of darkness, because of Christ, there is a light which is dawning, which is rising. A few years back, I was um, at Rosario, and when I got there, I had someone tell me about, you know, bioluminescence. Like, you have to see the bioluminescence. I was like, okay, whatever. This is does not sound that interesting. Like, no, 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 it's great. See the bioluminescence. Okay, how do we see the bioluminescence? Well, you have to wait till it's dark. Okay, and then what, what do we do? Then we walk to some water, and then what? Then we, like, throw a stone in or trouble the water, and you're going to see some really cool things. So I said, okay, let's do it. It's dark. 
We go out from the cabins. We're walking on the path. I'm stumbling on objects I cannot see. I'm tripping over tree trunks, just trying to figure out how we're going to move forward through the darkness. And then someone pulls out of their pocket a phone and turns the torch on, the flashlight. And we start to see a little better. And it doesn't change the darkness. It doesn't uh, get rid of the darkness forever, but it does give us a sense of clarity and a sense of purpose about where we are walking toward. And as I was putting the sermon together, this was where I was going to end. And then I realized Isaiah is not telling us that the hope of the Christ child is a battery-operated and possibly um, faulty hope. Rather, he says that the hope is the dawn. It's the sun. This is the hope that we recognize and remember during Advent, that the sun is rising, that Christ has risen, that light is being shone into the places of darkness in our life, that Jesus Christ cannot be held back any more than you can hold back the dawn, that he has come once, that his kingdom is now, and that his kingdom will one day be fully consummated as he comes back for the second advent. We live in the tension, but we live with the hope that although we sometimes have to squint because of illness that takes out family members, because of tragedies that happen in our world, it can still seem like it's dark, that we can go to the word of God, we can see the goodness of God and know that the light is rising, that there is hope, that the sun cannot be held back, that Jesus Christ is going to come and fulfill this Isianic vision of this child who has broad shoulders to withstand imperial governments, who champions justice and restores the order of things in the world, who brings peace in a world ravaged by war, who ushers in a new kingdom into our lives. This was the hope of Isaiah, and it is the renewed hope of Christians around the Advent season. Often we uh, sanitize and minimize the Advent season. We literally minimize uh, the season, and we have little um, you know, nativity um, figurines. We have doilies that we will put um, above the bathroom of our guest um, bathroom above the toilet of the guest bathroom. You know, just cute stuff about Advent and about baby Jesus. But this is not a flashlight. This is a blazing hot star. This is the sun. This is the hope that we have. This is not a hallmark holiday to be uh, noted. This should, if you are in a place of darkness, beckon hope and quicken in your life that yes, although we cannot see through all the difficulties we're going through, Christ has come and Christ will come. And as he dawns in your life, may this season of Advent give you the hope of knowing that this child, this yelled that came is available in your life today. And I do want to end because I won't, I don't want to end on this on a weird saccharine note where it seems like it's Disneyland. I often try to um, 
you know, push back against preaching that sounds like Disney. Because after first serve, I had a student who came up to me and said, oh, I appreciate the sermon, but listen, um, what, what do I do when I have for years, you know, struggled under the burden of something which I've prayed about? I feel like I've been in a place of darkness and gloom and I just cannot move past it. I, I cannot move through it. You know, how do I interact with the text now? And I looked at the student and I said, you know, um, I, I don't have an answer for you. I have some I have a response, I have some thoughts, but I don't really have an answer for you. And, and she responded and we, we spoke about Paul, about this thorn in the flesh that he had, this darkness that he was in. And it seemed like the darkness would never lift. And yet in Paul's life, he was able to come to this new imagination of the difficulty he was in, that in his weakness, Christ's strength was made perfect, that Christ was not going to give him more than he was able to bear. In the response, we explored perhaps what the cross means uh, for us, that even when we are in our place of darkness, we have a Christ who on a Sabbath hung on a cross and experienced that total darkness with us, who does not say, hey, it's, it's, all, it's gonna be you know, peaches and cream, it's going to be just fine. But if you are in a place of gloom in this Advent, it isn't just a Christ child who does not know how to enter with you, but it's a Christ who has been in the deepest gloom of irrepressible darkness and who has been able to, trans, um, to come over the top of it so that you can live your life with a horizon which is fringed with hope and where sun is a reality. And so I want to beckon you towards this Advent image of a Christ who can dispel darkness, of a Christ who can give hope. And also name the fact that for some of you, it feels like it's been too long, it's too hopeless, and say that there is a Christ who has been in that gloom and who has been in that darkness. And this season, he wants to come close and he wants to come near to you so that together we might all know that we serve a wonderful counselor and a mighty God who is everlasting and who is everlasting. Amen.